Colossians 3 and verse 12 is where we're turning for this morning time. Colossians 3 and verse 12, we looked at the beginning of this verse last week. We'll look at uh, the rest of it, Lord willing, today. This is a critical text for us to consider, especially in this day and age, when so much is made about strife and conflict between people and even between people groups, as the scripture talks about uh, tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. There are terms that have been flying around in our society for these last few years, but even over these last decades in the more academic realms and you know, the high institutions of higher learning, which so many times is not, it's lesser learning. It's, it's devolved. I mean, it's just weird stuff going on. Words that remind us of uh, not necessarily an embarrassing history, but a, a wicked history or heritage that we have as a people. And not just as Americans, as just as people, the murders, the enmities, the strife, the oppression, the, the, uh, the robbing, the kidnapping, the raping, the torturing, all the nasty uh, things that we do to one another. But there, there's a solution that's being offered by the world, and that is under the guise of critical race theory, CRT, as you've heard it perhaps. And they use terms like colonization or cultural appropriation that we, uh, we as, as one culture are not allowed to uh, participate or embrace aspects of another uh, culture. There is a drive for equity and the, the uh, um, conquering of implicit biases that we have. In some respects, uh, racism, which is another one of these terms, uh, and even not just racism, but a structural or systematic racism that is imbued or Im- uh, written into our uh, Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our laws, our, 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 the ways that we organize ourselves. There is a systematically racist tendency, an implicit bias, and it's not based on uh, so much individual choice. It's based on, well, you're white. You have white skin, and therefore you are an oppressor, and you need to not just repent, because repentance isn't really a, a right word. It is you ought to just apologize for yourself the rest of your life. You ought to uh, withdraw and shame and reproach, and that you have no right to speak on anything. Although you'd also say, there's another saying that says silence is violence. If you don't say anything, then you are violent. You continue this this uh, this uh, white privilege and, and this oppression. There's oppressed and oppressor, which really reminds you, if you're a student of history much, you remind, are reminded of Karl Marx and his whole uh, communist idea of uh, the struggle or the strife between races, not races, but um, elements of society, the class uh, struggles that are are there, you have an oppressed class, an oppressor class, and now we just apply it not just to uh, societal groups in that regard, or social groups, but in terms of skin color, because that's really what it is. Uh, Racism is only skin deep. If you're white, you're a racist. If you're not, then you are uh, a victim of racism. There is uh, another word called wokeness, or being woke, or wokeism has the idea of being aware or alert to what's going on, really understanding what the, the significant issues are in life. But it's off base. It is finding a problem. Yes, problem. The problem is not skin color. The problem is sinful hearts. We, we, aren't, we don't go deep enough so many times. We don't go to the heart of the issue, as it were. Are there issues between peoples? Of course there are. Have there been from day one? Yes. Well, maybe not day one. 
first day, second day, third day. But from the time of, that uh, Cain killed his brother, there's been strife and anger and animosity and murder. Why? For a variety of reasons. We see all sorts of nastiness going on in our, uh, in our, her- in our heritage, in our history. But even today, we see all this conflict that is going on. There is a claim in the church even that the church needs to use the analytical tools of CRT because it, help, it gives us a, a helpful perspective on, on how, how we need to relate to another, on how race and racism really dominates. I mean, it is the issue affecting everything. We just don't understand being us of, of mostly white privilege, uh, in quotes. Uh, we just don't understand. We need to learn. We need to have an attitude of learning. This is what the uh, CRT proponents would say. But this this approach, this theory undermines biblical doctrines of original sin, undermines and ignores human depravity, not just as a culture, but as individuals. It ignores and minimizes Christ's atonement. And what, as we've been studying, what is what is what difference does Christ's death and resurrection make for us? What is justification after all? What is sanctification? Is there any hope for us? Because CRT would pretty much eliminate any hope. It places guilt, uh, well, it removes it from the individual and places it on the ethnicity. Oh, you can't help yourself because you're white, or or you you can't help yourself because you're black, and which is just wrong in so many different ways. Instead of absolving or helping calm down the strife between peoples, it's just stirring it up. It's making it the issue more prevalent. It eliminates the hope of individual change. There's no change. You can't change your skin color. Even the Bible says that. Can a leopard change its spots and so forth? And it ignores, and this is what ties into our text as we studied previously, but also for this morning, it ignores individual compassion, pity, love, and it affirms offense. It establishes it. It affirms resentment. It affirms, affirms judgment or condemnation, that there is no, no change. There's only uh, the expectation of, of judgment for those who violate the terms of CRT. In the face of that, Colossians 3 teaches us something entirely different about how we relate to another, how we should relate to another in Christ, and what difference does Christ make. You have your scriptures open to Colossians 3. I'm going to read for us beginning at verse 9 and uh, through a few verses here, backing up just a little bit because these are the problems we see not just in the first century with Paul, but in the 21st century. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. So, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and graciously forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. Above all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. We'll stop the reading right there. We, just backing up into that previous verse, verse 11, he listed off these different ethnic groups or societal groups or religious groups that we looked at back here. And he says, there is no distinction. Thankfully, there's no distinction. You've heard the phrase maybe that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, which is to say anyone 
Anyone can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, Jew or Gentile, Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. So not just in terms of ethnicity or religious observance or societal or cultural um, advancement, you know, knowledge and, and the skills that way, even in terms of uh, the societal roles that we have in our culture, slave or free man. It doesn't matter. Any of those things are irrelevant when it comes to coming to Christ and living out what it means to be in Christ. These, these words that Paul is saying are revolutionary in that first century, but even now in this 21st century, that everybody can get along. And that's a phrase even back from 1993, I think. Can't we all get along? Uh, you can study the history of L.A. riots back in, in 1992 or 93, and a long time ago. But Christ is the one, Christ is the issue. Christ is all and in all. It's not to say that everybody's going to heaven when we die kind of thing, you know, believing in a, in a universal salvation or that Christ is somehow in everything, like a pantheism, that God is everything or everything is in God. Uh, well, that gets kind of heady really quick. But Christ is is the whole issue. Christ is where we need to resolve our our differences, coming to Christ, finding our identity in him. And, and he has been telling this, this for the whole, the whole letter, as he's written to the Colossians. Make much of Christ, not your, uh, your secretive knowledge, not your uh, status of circumcision, not your, uh, your worship of angels, not all these silly things, just things that distract, things that lead away. Remember talking about empty deception, uh, the philosophy that, that argues against Christ, be taken captive by Christ, love him, seek him, find your identity in him. And so he says in verse 12, as the elect of God, as those who are chosen, selected by God's sovereign choice, as those kinds of people, recognizing God's work in you, recognizing your new identity in Christ. And he says, we looked at that election idea last week, last time. He says, because of that, because of your identity in Christ and as elect, but also here these, these second and third adjectives that describe our identity. He says we are holy, we are beloved in Christ, which ought to just knock your socks off. I mean, keep your socks on and everything, but to, for us to be called holy, do you know yourself? I mean, you certainly know the other people that live in your house, but and you work with and you drive on the streets with, you, they're not holy, and yet we see this adjective, this description, this this definition that those who are in Christ are holy. Now, God says, be holy, just as I am holy. That expectation of holiness is not just a New Testament thing. That is an Old Testament requirement. Be holy. Walk in holiness. You are called by my name, and therefore you need to be uh, uh, set apart or consecrated. You've heard that term. Set apart for the service of God. God has to, it includes the idea of being devout or pious. And we think, oh, there's these, all these pious people, these people who are so, you know, so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good kind of a thing. They are dedicated to the Lord, but they are just weird. Well, there's a, there's a good reason for that. If our weirdness is not because we're weird, I mean, everybody's weird to some, everybody's crazy in some regard, but if we give offense to other people, uh, based on that, that's one thing. But if 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 we if the offense that people have toward us and the dismissal that they have toward us is because we offer a a gospel that 
not just assumes, but proclaims personal guilt, wickedness, depravity, choosing the wrong path. And now we can find a salvation, a justification by grace through faith in Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That offer of salvation is rejected by the world. They say, what kind of sense does that make? I'm fine. I'm a good person. Who is this God? I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe there's an afterlife. I don't believe there's judgment. This is all we have. And to offer that kind of a message is offensive. Now, we don't want to confuse it by being weird or obnoxious in that regard. And and First Peter talks quite a bit about that suffering unjustly versus suffering justly and having persecution and so forth. But we want to be weird, go back to that term, which isn't a biblical term, but it, it, it is how the world understands or dismisses Christians. We think of ourselves, we ought to, as holy or devout or pious or set apart for God. We don't have any superiority in ourselves. I mean, good grief. If you've seen us lately, we're a mess. Uh, we, we want to emulate Christ. We want to offer him to the world, but we are, what does the scripture say? We are not just broken vessels. Uh, I mean, potsherds, pottery, you know, clay vessels, that kind of thing, but we're, we're broken. We need a potter who can put these pieces back together and offer something to the world. We want to be channels of God's blessings, God's blessing, but oftentimes we distract the world based on our, our choices and our, our idiosyncrasies, or you might put a little T in there, idiot syncrasies sometimes, but we just act foolishly, not foolishly as the world would say, but foolishly even as God says. And we are not to do that. And, and he gives us examples here in this text how we can distract from the message of the gospel and distract from the power of God to infiltrate the gospel for good. We saw it earlier by lying to one another, by having enmity with one another, by, by those things we saw in verse, verse um, 8, I think it was listed there. And in contrast, we'll see this. But to, for us to be described by God as holy is so beyond our comprehension. God said back to the nation Israel in Exodus 19, as they, they stood at the mountain of Sinai and were about to receive the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19 and verse 5 says that concept of holiness or dedication or uh, consecration is repeated so many times with the nation Israel, Leviticus. Uh, so many times we see the word holy or set apart. In fact, if you ever hear about archaeological discoveries uh, and sometimes there's just a little fragment of a, of a, of a pottery, maybe a part of a, um, a, a jar or a, a vase or a pitcher or something, or even um, amulets, you know, uh, jewelry and different things. And it has this little phrase, Kadosh Adonai, holy to the Lord, set apart, Kadosh, uh, uh, sanctified by God's own, or, or set apart for God's own purposes. This isn't your, your normal tableware. This is for service of God in the temple. And it's not to be used for, for uh, mundane things. We are set apart for God. Leviticus 11.44 says, I am the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And he repeats it in verse 45. I, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This statement is so much in contrast to what we studied back in Colossians 1, as Paul described us in that context, apart from Christ. He says, although, this is Colossians 1.21, although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind, 
and in evil deeds, but now he reconciled you. Now there is a solution for that, but, but don't ever forget from where you have come. You were formerly alienated, set apart, not set apart for God, but set apart from God. Set, uh, uh, en enemies in mind and in evil deeds, not just in our thoughts, but the way that we acted. And for us now to be described as holy, that that is just beyond our comprehension. For God to make such a change, did he change the color of our skin? That's never been the issue. Skin color, skin tone, we're all shades of brown from dark to light. Uh, all that kind of nonsense is not a helpful, does not advance the, the conversation. It only distracts, it only focuses on, uh, I mean, it's almost as relevant as having buck teeth or not buck teeth, or, or having um, blue eyes or, or green eyes, or, or just it makes no difference. And yet, so many times, we have discrimination toward one another. We look each other up and down, we say, oh, you're wearing a brown belt, but you're wearing black shoes. And it's a scandal. And we're, we immediately dismiss them and say they have no fashion sense. They are just rubes. They're just, is that the right word? I don't even know. Uh, because we, we look for ways to cancel other people. That's not how God wants us to interact with. He, I mean, there is plenty, or there are plenty of reasons for us to cancel one another if we really got down to it. And really not even, not getting down to it, just rubbing against each other. We know there's this wrong with this person that wrong with that person. I am like, I'm a straight stick among a bunch of crooked crooked twigs. You know, I, I am, I'm the one that people ought to, and we get too full of ourselves. Paul in this passage says, that's not how you relate to another. It's not how you should relate to another. You are holy. You are set apart for God. You are his ambassadors. Remember from where you've come. You are holy now. And then he says this, beloved. This isn't so much an adjective like, uh, God the Father talks about this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It, it talks, I mean, that's, that's a status or a term like beloved, but this is a, a verb, a, a verbal form of, of or a, a noun form of a verb in which to say it is, and it's in a passive voice. So those who are loved by God, and it's in a, pa in a perfect tense. So what is that saying? We have been and continue to be loved by God. God is the one who loves us which we think, wait a minute, weren't we back in Colossians one twenty one formerly alienated and enemies of God? Yes. But Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's the issue. That solves the problem. Christ died in our place. And for us now to not be enemies, not to be uh, uh, just objects of God's wrath, Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are accepted. We are brought near through the blood of, of Christ. And now we are beloved. Lest we think there's no biblical basis for the song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Do you know, all over the scripture, God professes and pronounces and proclaims and underscores his love, first for Israel, in the Old Testament so much talked about with, for God's love of Israel, but then those who are in Christ. God loved us and sent his son. Isaiah 5 and verse 1, which reminds us, or I guess which came first? Paul, uh, excuse me, Jesus has a, a parable of a vineyard and a landowner planted a vineyard and then went away and so forth and trusted it to other people. Isaiah uh, records this 
this uh, song that God had for his well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And you can read more about that in Isaiah 5. But it describes how many different times, three times in that one verse, this idea of love, of affection, of wanting to draw near. God himself wanting to draw near to his people. And this, this phrase that Matthew uses and applies to the Lord Jesus, Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's much to, to get into with that verse and how Matthew uses it to explain the prophetic fulfillment that Jesus had when he went down to Egypt to escape Herod's uh, wrath and murderous intents and then brought, was brought out of Egypt. And he says, in fulfillment, just as the prophet said, out of Egypt have I called my son. But this idea of love that God has for Israel and continues to have an intimacy, a an affection, a commitment, a dedication to the, the sons and daughters of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will fulfill certain promises and uh, 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 commitments that he has made to them. We see that expression that God the Father has toward Israel, but we see how he applies that to us as well. That we have uh, this statement here in, in Colossians 3.12, of course, that we are loved by God. But also Paul says, First Thessalonians 1 and verse 4, that we are loved by God and we are beloved in God the Father, that we are, uh, how else does he say here? Uh, we are even, the Apostle Paul said, you are my beloved children. He said, um, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 14, I admonish you as my beloved children. So even from the apostles' standpoint, the apostles who represented Christ, who are his sent messengers, his authorized uh, uh, speakers or representatives, he says, I loved you. I, and because I love you, I'm admonishing you. I'm challenging you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He describes this this uh, reality that we are loved by God, that it's not just a reality, it is a, therefore an imperative for us to live out those who are loved by God. Ephesians 5 and verse 1 and 2, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So we are beloved children of God, and yet he says because of that we must walk or conduct our daily lives in love. Love ought to characterize our interactions with one another and many other places we could see. The, the point is, with these three terms, elect, holy, and beloved, these terms are, are applied to Israel in the Old Testament, but also applied to the New Testament believers. And so we have an assurance that, not that New Testament believers or, or believers in Christ have somehow replaced Israel. No, we are, as Paul says in Romans 11, we are grafted into that wonderful root, the root of God's covenant blessings through Abraham. That through Abraham, the blessing of God might come to us crazy Gentiles. And we're not, and how, did you choose your parentage? When did you, did you make that arrangement? And what, how did you sign your name uh, when you approved who your parents would be? You can't do that. That's just ludicrous. We don't, we can't do that. God in his kindness, God in his sovereignty has set the parameters of our lives, of our, the lives of nations and, and city-states and everything. We can find Assurance that whatever God does, he does well, and he knows best, and he is sovereign, and he will get glory. None of the blame, none of the blame that we can say, well, well, how, how did you endorse all this wicked thing, all these wicked things that have gone on in history? It's not because of God. 
because of man's rebellion against God. It's, it's our volitional, our, our chosen task of violating him, not just uh, casually sometimes, but high-handed rebellion against God. No, God, I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. And the, the that expression, of course, is is wrong, and that each one will bear his own sins in that regard. But he says here, getting back to the text, he says, you are elect of God, you are holy, set apart for him, you are loved greatly by God, and therefore how ought you to live? Lives of arrogance, proud, condemnation, lives of boasting and, and just tearing one another apart because obviously you are, you know, it's just, I love that statement that Job said, uh, to, to his counselors after they told him, well, this is wrong with you, and that's wrong with you, and you ought to do this, and God is this. And Job said, well, surely you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. And that's just, you know, that is just a beautiful, a beautiful thought, that these people think they know so much, and God himself finds fault with them. And it's almost like you wish that their wisdom would die with them. So many false teachers, I mentioned Karl Marx, um, uh, others in history that have have a, a worldly wisdom that is not right. You wished, you could wish that that, that teaching would, would die with them. But no, it lives on and it infiltrates more minds and it, it is enlarged upon and, and it is made much of. But thankfully, the memories and the teaching of people like David, who was a, an adulterous murderer, um, a rebel at heart, and yet he, had a man, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of, of great sins, but also great repentance and confession. Uh, just what a marvelous character that we can identify with in so many regards. Or um, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. God, you, you, I don't want to tell this message anymore. Can you find somebody else? Moses, you know, the humblest man, the meekest man that ever lived. He said, God, send somebody else to do this stuff. And we're in, we're in good company that we ought not boast in ourselves, we boast in Christ. Because of our identity in Christ, he says this ought to characterize your lives. He, he gives five different examples and, and then continues it in the next verse, really un, uh, underscoring, underlining what these attitudes and, and practices ought to be uh, in our human relationships. He says, put on a heart of compassion. Now, again, we looked at just briefly that idea of putting on. We saw the, the idea of, of taking off like filthy garments, put off that stuff, which is both a, uh, an indicative. It's something that has happened. We have put off the old man and put on the new man, but it's also something that continually happens. We need to continually put off the, the works of the flesh. We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to live to honor him. And so he says, put on, as, as if you were to put on a garment, a warm coat on a, on a cold day, or a rain jacket, or, or whatever it might be, that we are clothing ourselves with the righteousness of Christ, not just in terms of justification before God, but how we relate to other people. We are demonstrating our righteousness, our new lives in Christ, by having a heart of compassion. A heart of compassion, he says, Instead of the animosity that we has had, instead of the lying and deception and the, 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 the warring against each other, he says, put on a heart of compassion. This, this phrase, these are actually two words, and it puts together in this phrase, heart of compassion. But both terms, as Paul used them here, uh, can, can be and have been translated as compassion. So it's almost like you could say, put on a compassion of compassion, which is kind of weird. But the, the, um, this word compassion itself translated here is 
the idea of having a great affection for somebody. It's like love, but it, it's not necessarily, um, well, there are different kinds of love, of course, romantic or or uh, sentimental kind of love. But this is a love that, that esteems, like Philippians 2 says, esteeming or thinking of other people is more important than yourself. Thinking of things from their perspective, which coming back to that CRT issue, are there issues, are there problems that, that darker skinned folks have endured throughout the centuries? Well, sure. And it's not just people from Africa, people from India. Did you ever seen very dark skinned uh, Indians? Well, sure. I mean, from India or um, light skinned people from different, there are impoverished, there are oppressed, there are uh, uh, oppressors in every hue, skin color known to man. And for us to say, well, it, it's just down to skin color. No, no, it's not. But for us to somehow appreciate or sympathize or at least empathize with other people that, okay, you've, you've faced some issues in your life. You, and was because of you grew up in a fatherless home or you were born into poverty or your parents didn't want you, your parents fought over things every night, they beat you, whatever. That is an issue of sin. That is an issue of uh, you've been sorely and, and poorly uh, mistreated. It's wrong what people have done to you. But focusing on that strife, focusing on the, the issues, is not as helpful as, as directing our attention to Christ who solves these things, who may or may not change the heart of the other person, the absentee father, the abusive parents, whatever it might be, but it can change you. It can change your life, your perspective. You can be, as the next verse says, bearing with one another, forgiving, forgiving. If you have been forgiven, by the way, have you been forgiven? If you have been forgiven, then you ought to be forgiving. He says, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. That really is the issue. That's why CRT fails, one of the reasons. Where's forgiveness? Where is the opportunity for reconciliation? It's just a, a, an excuse for, for canceling people in a lot of regards. He says, put on this heart of compassion. This this compassion has to do with, I mean, literally, it talks about the inward parts, not the not the heart kind of a thing, but the kind of the bowels. And, and maybe King James translates it, bowels of mercy. He would, uh, the King James translation would, would offer. But this is the idea of uh, almost an emotional relating to the other person or thinking, put, you know, as our, we say, put on, you know, walk in the other person's shoes or, you know, how would it be to live as they have lived or endure what all, all they have endured in their lives? How can we have a heart of compassion? How can we motivated, be motivated out of this kind of an affection? Again, as Paul says, thinking of other people as more important than ourselves, not uh, immediately running to the solution, but to, to help or, or seek to understand what this person has gone through not as a, a means of excusing God's grace and God's redemption, God's regeneration in life, but to appreciate or, or look at it from their perspective, to talk with them and listen to them. So many times we, we as a church would, would just say, God hates homosexuals, which he does. But are, we, are we as much animated to say, God hates liars? Or God hates thieves, and we just want to bring our Bible right down on other people's heads. It is so interesting. You've read uh, Jean Valjean, uh, Les Miserables by Vic Victor Hugo, I wrote that. Why did he steal bread? Is it because, he, because he was a thief? No, he stole bread to feed his sister's children. Now, was it wrong to steal? Yes, it was wrong to steal. But 
The reason why he did it, was that wrong? No. To appreciate, to come at it, and of course Javert, the, the lawkeeper, was just enforcing the law. There's no change. Criminals are always the same. They don't, they don't ever change. Uh, once in, in prison, you're always in prison. I know you criminal types, that kind of thing. Whereas Jean Valjean repented. He changed. He became not a, a taker, but a giver. So generous, all, laying down his life many times for those about him. There is the possibility of real change, which a compassionate, understanding face like the bishop in the story. If you've read the story or seen the movie or the musical or whatever, the bishop kind of weirdly says, I bought your soul for God, right? Which we don't do that, but we pronounce grace and, and compassion for people and seeing, I know you've had a hard time. I know this has been difficult for you, but how can we help? How can we not just... To, to wallow in the ashes and, the, and the, the mess of the thing, but how can we rise up above it? How can I help you in that regard? Bowels of compassion or a heart of compassion will help with that. You know, God has a compassionate heart toward us that he is uh, having a tender mercy. Luke 1 verse 78 talks about the tender mercy of our God who, who comes to us, that he is the one who uh, sets his affection or his his uh, um, his compassion on us, Christ himself, as he's approached by maimed and, and diseased people, he moved with compassion. Jesus moved with compassion, Mark 141, stretched out his hand and touched that leper and said to him, I am willing that you would be cleansed. And and he was he was so. This idea of compassion or, or having a tender heart, instead of a, a hard heart, but a tender heart that can empathize with other people and to not understand completely, but but appreciate what they are going through. This, this second idea, compassion, having a heart of compassion, is the willingness to show mercy. It is, it is a practice of concern for other people, uh, being a sensitive soul, not wimpish or, or, you know, always just quick to tears. I mean, that's not, that can be helpful, but, but can you show kindness? And actually, kindness is another term we'll see here. It's the idea of pity, not from us being superior and you being inferior and I'm showing pity to you, but, but really appreciating uh, what the, who this person is. This is a person made in the image of God. They are so much in sin, both the, the recipient of, of violent and vile sinfulness and whatever, and they've also engaged in it themselves, and they are uh, abused by, as Ephesians 4 says, the deceitfulness, the deceptiveness of sin. They have been sorely abused. This is a person made in the image of God, and now they've, they've squandered it, they've violated it. How can I offer a balm, a, a, a word of comfort, a word of uh, mercy, a word of lifting that person up to, to God? That's this idea of, of heart of compassion. God, when he describes himself to Moses, Moses said, show me your face. And God, this is Exodus 34, 33, 34, God comes and you hear this pronouncement, this word describing God. He says, Yahweh, uh, God Yahweh, compassionate and gracious. Why does he start with that? Why not holy, holy, holy? Why not just? Why not uh, sovereign? Why not? Because that's not what Moses needed. He needed the compassion. And that's what we need. And that's what we need individually, but also to offer to other people a compassion, uh, a, a mercy toward other people that we would have not just a, a casual or superficial compassion. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, like James says, uh, you see somebody, you know, be warm and be filled or, or go home and, and tell somebody else your problems. Uh, no, but can we 
really sit down in the ash heap. I mean, if there's one thing that Job's friends did right, they came and sat down with him. And they were with him in his misery, in his discomfort, in his physical and emotional, spiritual, ah! And they were there, and yet when they opened their mouths, that wasn't so helpful. You want to make sure that you are equipped to share hope and share truth with one another. He says, put on a heart of compassion. Excellent thing. This idea, the second idea, kindness, really has the root idea of being helpful for another or being useful. And to be kind is an attitude, but it's also an action. So it, it is something that, um, that be, because we are motivated to help this other person, we are, are willing to, to look for, okay, how can we help? What can we do to, to serve? What can we do to minister? Not just, uh, okay, you need food, I'll give you food, but, but more deep, deeper, deeper than that, that we want to get down to those, those real issues of really being useful food, clothing, shelter, those are important things to deal with, and we, we want to help in those regards. But the message of reconciliation, the message of hope in Christ is what we offer. Uh, we can see something like this, the kindness and severity of God, Romans 11 and verse 22. The kindness and severity of God. We think those are kind of opposites, aren't they? Well, yes. Well, he, God is kind to some, as he says, you to those who repent, to those who believe, but he is severe to those who refuse to believe and refuse to repent and humble themselves before God. So that you see the opposite or the, the contrast, kindness and severity, you know, being uh, uh, ruthless or being harsh toward other people. Not that sometimes we need to be harsh, rebuking. Sometimes there's a harsh element to it, always motivated out of love, of course, and, and wanting that other person to believe and, and change, but it's it's... Whatever kind of words, this is Ephesians 4.29, whatever kind of words come out of our mouths, we want them to be useful, that they would build up the other person, not to tear them down. Now, our words, again, may be difficult to hear sometimes, even as Paul says, I admonish you as beloved children. But our intention, our hope, our expectation is that there would be real, lasting change in, in our minds and, of course, in our, in our words that come out of our, our heart and then in our relationships, we'd see a, a significant change. Uh, this next idea, and I'll, I'll just briefly finish this verse anyway to, to get these thoughts in our mind because these are so powerful in our day-to-day -day, uh, lives. He says, put on heart of compassion, kindness, being useful to another, uh, easy. In fact, Jesus' words, when he says, my yoke is easy, this is the word kindness. My, my yoke is, is uh, beneficial. It is meant to be a blessing, not a, not a cursing or a hindrance. But he says next, have a uh, humility, it's humility of mind or lowliness of mind, maybe the King James or New King James translates. This is, uh, how does one person say, this is not thinking uh, less of yourself, less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I mean, we have every reason to be humble. Have you thought about that? You have every reason to be humble. I have every reason. No, I have no grounds for boasting in myself. But in Christ, yes, I Yes, but as we think about our relationship with other people, it's not from a, a place of superiority or condescension looking down on those, those uh, people down there, but it is a lowliness of mind. It is a uh, true humility, which if you remember back in Colossians 2, there was this, the same word was used to describe the false teachers, but it wasn't a, a humility of mind. It was a uh, almost a self-abasement or a... Um, a, a treating yourself badly, even in terms of uh, 
penances or, or even beating yourself on the back, whether literally or figuratively, and, and even being falsely humble, but you've seen that before. You've maybe done that before. Oh, don't, don't tell me how great I am. But we say, yeah, tell me how great I am, but don't tell me how great I am. I, and it's just not that kind of false humility. The standard of humility is Christ. Philippians 2. Put, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He didn't hold on to his equality with God. That equality with God was not something to be held on to, but he emptied himself. And you can read how that went, taking the form of man, taking the form of bondservant, laying down his life, not just uh, you know, death, you know, life as or death as an old man, but death of a cross as a criminal, as an unjustly uh, accused, innocent man, condemned to death, not just for himself, but for us. That's humility. It is not just the self-abasement mentioned in Colossians 2, uh, 18 and 23, but it is a humility of mind. It is thinking of other people as more important than yourself. This humility is all over the scriptures, talked about, expected, uh, practiced by other people. And we relate to another, not in a, an overbearing, domineering kind of way, but humbly serving, trying to meet needs as we're able, looking for ways that we can bless people, not thinking of what I can gain out of it, because after all, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So I want that blessing. I want what I can. You're just a tool. I'm just using you to get the blessing of God. That's the wrong. We don't do it for that. We do it to serve. We do it to meet other people's needs, regardless of what we may or may not gain from that activity. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. Gentleness is this idea of uh, uh, meekness. King James would talk about or courtesy. It is just a way to relate to another in um, in well gentleness in in uh, uh, a, a great um, tender dealings with one another that we would not be harsh that we would not be um, demanding our rights it even has the idea of being willing to lay down our rights to serve other people you read Les Miserables lately I mean wow gentleness of Jean Valjean who went and, and saved the life of so many different people and was so gentle. I mean, this was, he was described many times as a very, very strong, you know, physically strong guy, but he used that strength to serve other people. He was willing to be slighted. He was willing, he says, how can I let somebody who is, how can I let somebody be condemned in my place? Remember the whole drama about, because um, he was on the, on the run from the law for whatever, he had broken parole. And somebody was captured, being accused of being Jean Valjean, who was not. And, and he says, How, I can't let that person die in my place, even though nobody else would know. I'm living a life. I'm being useful to other people. I'm employing all these people in my factory. How can I run away from that to, for this one person? And you can read how that all went. But that gentleness, that meekness, not being spineless or wimpish or, or somehow weak or, or lily-livered, I think of... Uh, the Silver Chair, C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Puddleglum. You, you thought about that fella? I mean, here was a guy who was courageous. He was a brick. They, you know, the guys, the humans would talk about him as being a, a stout fella. But he was, he was portrayed as being kind of uh, wimpish. And so it, it's not that kind of look. He was a strong character. He was one of the strongest characters in that, in the whole story. And yet he used his perceived inadequacies to guide and protect and lead his his uh, fellows in their in their quest, well, that kind of gentleness is how we relate to another. 
uh, using our strength, using our uh, rights, even not for ourselves, but to serve other people. And finally, he says, having patience. Having patience one with another. Patience is only used when we need it, which is another way of saying, y'all don't have to be patient when you're watching the football game. Probably. Unless you're waiting for a drink. Your wife hasn't brought, hasn't brought your, your Coca-Cola or your iced water or whatever. You're being impatient or that kind of thing. You don't have to be patient for things that you enjoy. But you need patience. We all need patience for things that are kind of hard to swallow. And people that are just being, I wish you wouldn't do that. I wish you wouldn't say that. And we're just thinking that. Meanwhile, we're smiling and, and just putting up with each other because that's what we do. Bearing with one another. Next verse we'll talk about. Being patient means we don't get angry. It means long-suffering. Long, we saw this earlier in terms of uh, our, our wrathfulness. Verse 8 talks about, about that idea of being quick to anger or um, uh, wrathful or malicious and, and doing all. No, we're, we are slow to anger. It Does doesn't mean we don't get angry sometimes, but uh, we, we don't hold resentment or don't hold grudges. Love does not keep a record of wrong suffered. Can you imagine what life would be like if we always wrote down our offenses uh, other people's offenses against us. We don't write down our own offenses, right? We uh, we hide those behind our back. No, but other people's. And that just stimulates our resentment toward one another. No. You know how God describes it? He is patient in that Exodus 34 passage. The Lord is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, patient with us. He is patient. He has... Uh, uh, allowed this Romans two and verse four says, "Do you think lightly of the riches of and the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance?" These ideas of gentleness, patience are are described in in Second uh, Timothy two when it talks about the man of God must be must not be quarrelsome, and he talks about being gentle with the possibility that those who are false teachers might repent. Wow. That we're patient now. We hold to the truth. We, we as uh, my resident director back in college would say, we are um, valiant for the truth. We are aggressive in love. We uphold the truth of God's word, but we do it in a way that is aggressively, not, not violently or, or rudely, but, but purposefully, deliberately loving the other person. It might be that the other person doesn't want to receive that message uh, of the truth at that time. And, and doesn't even acknowledge, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, the Bible says, and God says, we don't, we don't discount or ignore our devotion to God's truth because of other people, but we patiently teach. Secondly, 4 talks about in season and out of season, not just for, for preachers, you know, proclaim the word of God, but each person has the responsibility, whether it's a good time, whether it's a bad time, we uphold God's truth, we offer that out. We do it patiently, we do it with with long-suffering, not taking offenses personally. I mean, there's all kind of reasons, all kind of opportunities we have to, to be offended, to be, to be hurt, have hurt feelings, and, and uh, uh, even being misunderstood or um, regarded as, as a fool or, or an ignorant person. We don't, we don't, that doesn't register to us. We are long-suffering. We put up with each other. We, we in, the, in the church, of course, but even outsiders that, that don't know any better. They don't know any better. They're unbelievers. They're, they're not in Christ. Can we have the pity that God has? Can we love even while we were enemies so we can have that laying down our lives? Christ laid down his life for his enemies. We can have this human-oriented uh, patience toward one another uh, and that we are uh, steadfastly 
attaining patience. Colossians 1 and verse 11 talked about that. Patience is a big deal. And that whole combination of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. And he goes on. He's, he's not done yet, which is so interesting. And we'll conclude with this. This idea of being in Christ is not just something that, that changes our eternal destiny. We're going to go to heaven when we die, or I know that my sins are forgiven. We know that we are Christians, Jesus himself said it, by our love, our love for each other, our devotion to the brethren, but also the way that we live with people outside the church. We are, uh, we do good to all, all men, especially the household of faith. We are those who are, um, well, we're just animated, motivated, imbued, endued even. That's coming from that Greek word to put on. Uh, we are empowered by God's love. This is supernatural stuff because you can't do it by yourself. You, you try to love based on your own strength, your own whatever, you're going to be empty soon. But you are, if you are filled with God's love, recognizing I am in Christ, elect, holy, beloved, loved by God, then I can love other people. There's that old Gaither song, um, I am loved, you are loved. I can risk loving you for the one who loved me best lo knows me. The one who knows me best loves me most. Wow. We're in Christ. Let's act like it. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth of your word that changes us and gives us hope and gives us a reason for being in this world. Please help us to be your people. We know that we are a mess. We are insignificant, inadequate, and just a poor excuse for humanity a lot of times. We pray that in Christ we would stand firm in him and that we would be, as we described, compassionate and gentle and kind and, and patient and, and uh, humble as we want to relate to one another. Thank you for your kindness to us, your mercy shown to us in Christ. Please help us to remember how much we have been forgiven so that we would be able to relate to others in, in your same way, to walk in love. Thank you for this good time. Please save and sanctify us for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.